This week, antibiotic resistance lurks in the soil. But don't worry, that's where it's staying. Even though we, we uh, discover this incredible diversity of genes in soil bacteria, most of them are not poised to jump into pathogenic bacteria. And a supposedly simple creature, the comb jelly, reveals its hidden depths. You have a very simple genome, but you have a very relatively complex animal which has a nervous system and musculature. So people were surprised by these findings. Plus using genetic material from three people to make a baby. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 22nd, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Hospitals can be breeding grounds for bacteria resistant to drugs. So you might be surprised to hear these defiant little organisms have another common home. Soil. The grubby stuff is another playground for bacteria harbouring antibiotic resistance genes. Some scientists think these genes could jump from soil bacteria to human pathogens, leading to bacteria that are immune to antibiotics. It's a big concern because antibiotic resistance costs hospitals money and it kills people. So scientists are keen to know how infectious bacteria become resistant. In this week's Nature, a team led by Gautam Dantas at Washington University School of Medicine ask whether soil bacteria are a reservoir of resistance waiting to happen. They've dug out nearly 3,000 antibiotic resistance genes from soil, and the results suggest the soil bacteria might not pose as big a threat as once thought. Here's Gautam. Antibiotics, as we use them in the clinic, almost all of them were actually originally discovered as natural products of soil-dwelling bacteria. And so then the rationale is, since those bacteria have existed in the soil for billions of years, possibly, with those production capacities, there's been all of this selection pressure for them and their neighbours to have tonnes and tonnes of resistance. So why are these bacteria producing antibiotics in the first place? There are really two explanations that have been proposed. One is indeed as offence molecules, that these bacteria needed a way in which to clear out the niche so they could use the resources there. So they produce these compounds actively uh, as sort of bio-warfare in the soil. There is another line of research that has picked up steam, which suggests that these compounds actually might have completely different functions. Uh, They might actually have functions as signaling molecules. So now you've identified thousands of genes um, in soil that are antibiotic resistant. Can you tell us what you've done? What we did was we went to 18 different soils from the U.S. Half of them were from Minnesota and the other half were from Michigan. We extracted all of the DNA out of uh, those soils, all of the bacterial DNA. And then we do a large-scale sequencing experiment uh, and some computational analysis to figure out which exact genes now that came from the original source are antibiotic resistance genes. And so that's how we get from soils and soil microbial DNA all the way over to just those genes that existed in those soils that encode antibiotic resistance. And how many of the genes that you uncovered are similar to genes that confer antibiotic resistance in in bacteria that cause disease in people? So that was one of the startling findings that even though we did this deep interrogation, most of the genes we found were novel. A dwindling minority of them were ones that were sequence identical to genes that have been found before 
uh, actually not just in pathogenic bacteria, but in any gene that has been described as an antibiotic resistance gene before. And can they transfer to bacteria that cause disease? The majority of the genes that we find in our set not only are novel, but they're, they're, they're not next to the type of mechanisms, the type of recognized genes that would move genes around. And so what this seems to suggest to us is that even though we, we discover this incredible diversity of genes in soil bacteria, most of them are not poised to jump into pathogenic bacteria. And why do you think that is? The speculation is that the, the niche is essentially filled. That is, these soil bacteria, as I said earlier, have had the, the selection pressure over millennia to accumulate antibiotic resistance. And so they don't have the necessity in their natural habitat to necessarily be hot-swapping genes, right? They're not under the same selection pressure as pathogens. And this, this is in stark contrast to what you'd imagine a pathogen is facing under clinical selection, right? Pathogens that come through they're being bombarded with antibiotics because we want to get rid of them. And so there's this high selection pressure for them to accumulate resistance genes. So we really think it's a difference of selection pressure. I mean, from these results, can we rule out soil bacteria as a source of antibiotic resistance in humans? So unfortunately not. (laughs) Uh, I think what we can safely say is that the majority of them are not poised right now to, to dump genes into pathogens. Uh, But there is this tiny but important minority of soil bacteria, uh, especially in this phylum, the proteobacteria, that do uh, actually have a demonstrated ability to go through these exchanges. So I think they might be, despite being a minority, the conduit for exchange between the environment uh, and the clinic. That was Gautam Dantas at Washington University School of Medicine. Coming up in the research highlights how letting stem cells age could lead to safer transplants and an ancient skeleton gives clues to Native American origins. But first, the UK Parliament could soon make it legal to use genetic material from three people to make a baby. It'll only be in very special cases where a woman has a disease that affects some of her egg's genetic material. Reporter Ewan Calloway, who's written about the technique in a feature, has this report. When Nikki Parker's daughter Carly was 11 years old, she started having trouble getting around. She was having difficulty running, keeping up with um, the children at school when they were playing, and um, she was starting to use the banister like a rope to climb the stairs, um, or like going up on them on all fours. She wouldn't, she couldn't just hold a banister like a normal person would and just use it to study herself. She was actually having a sort of climb. So Nikki took her daughter to the doctor. They were referred to a specialist who determined that her problems were caused by a DNA mutation in the cell's energy-generating structures, known as mitochondria. Children inherit all of their mitochondria from their mothers, and Nikki was later diagnosed with a milder form of the disease. I didn't know what mitochondrial disease was. I hadn't heard of it. So um, it was a shock. And it was sort of a bigger shock to discover that it could only be passed on by the mother. Mitochondria are the main generators of energy within the cell. That's Douglas Turnbull, a neurologist at Newcastle University. Mitochondrial disease is a a, a disturbance of when patients have an inherited defect in mitochondrial function. If they're very severe... They'll affect children in the first few hours, days, weeks, months, years of life. Milder mitochondrial diseases will affect patients much later in life. 
they tend to affect tissues which are very energy dependent, such as the central nervous system, the muscles, the heart, the hair cells and the cochlea, which are very energy dependent, which is why deafness is quite common, for example. Only a handful of mitochondrial diseases can be treated by correcting the underlying biological problem. For instance, with a dietary supplement. The rest of the conditions, we're really treating the symptoms rather than curing the condition. And that's why it's so important that we look for better drugs to treat patients with mitochondrial disease, or why it's so important for some families that they try and prevent mitochondrial disease and their next offspring, for example. For the past decade, Turnbull and his team have been developing reproductive treatments aimed at helping women like Nikki have children without passing on their mitochondrial mutations. So what we're really interested in is actually trying, in, in very simple terms, is transferring the nuclear DNA from an egg, that ha- an egg or early embryo that's got, or early zygote that's got a mitochondrial DNA mutation into a, another egg or early zygote that's got a have got normal mitochondria, and that's a basic premise of the technique, so that we're actually moving the nuclear DNA into an environment where there are healthy mitochondria. Mitochondrial replacement has been tested on mice, monkeys, and human egg cells in the lab. Now, Turnbull wants to try them in patients. The UK Parliament will vote on whether to legalize the procedures later this year. Turnbull acknowledges that the first patients who opt to conceive a child with these procedures will be taking a risk. I think that's inevitable. Um, but, you know, the first IVF baby was a bit of a leap. The process here has been really rigorous, and I, I think throughout this process, you know, it's what we're trying to do is provide people, women, with different choices. And, of course, ultimately, it'll be the family that will decide whether or not they want, want to take that leap, whether or not it's a risk they are prepared to take. Not all scientists are convinced that mitochondrial replacement will be safe. Edward Morrow, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Sussex, points out that experiments in fruit flies and mice have found problems. The concern is that by um, creating an embryo where genetic material comes from three rather than two parents, there may be some incompatibilities between the genetic material as provided by these three individuals. There's an evolutionary theory Uh, behind this concern and some evidence that's been collected over uh, quite a few years that shows that um, when you do the kinds of things proposed in um, model organisms, uh, you see deleterious effects of mismatching between genomes. Other critics warn that legalizing the procedures could open the door to genetically altering embryos in other ways, dubbed designer babies. Turnbull disagrees. This isn't designer babies. This is about preventing serious, life-threatening, disabling disease, which I think is an entirely different concept. This is a a process which, personally, uh, as somebody that looks after these patients, is something that I think would be really nice if we could bring to the clinic. Nikki Parker's daughter, Carly, is now 19. She walks around their home with difficulty and needs a wheelchair to leave the house. Despite these problems, she has a job doing clerical work for England's National Health Service. On the whole, Nikki feels lucky because her daughter is able to cope with her condition. Still, she hopes that the UK will legalize mitochondrial replacement to spare other families what hers has gone through. 
nobody wants to see their child go through what I've witnessed Collie going through or other women who um, have mitochondrial disease and have passed it on and it's just it'd be a fantastic thing for any anybody who has mitochondrial disease any woman who desperately wants to have a baby and then they're given the option of um, this treatment it would just take all the worry and anxiety and guilt because that's what I struggled with even though I didn't know I had it Nikki Parker ending that report from Ewan Calloway. You also heard from neurologist Douglas Turnbull and biologist Edward Morrow. Read the full feature at nature.com slash news. Still to come, how supposedly simple sea creatures called comb jellies harbour a complex nervous system. But before that, here's Noah Baker with the research highlights. Good things come to those who wait, according to a new study using mature stem cells in transplants. Scientists would like to use induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPS cells, made from a patient's own cells to replace damaged tissue. But there are concerns that they would form tumours or trigger inflammation. Leaving the cells to mature before transplanting them seems to avoid both these problems. US-based researchers transplanted mature and immature iPS cells into monkeys. Immature cells caused tumours and inflammation, but the mature cells generated new tissue. Find that paper in Cell. A 12,000-year-old human skeleton found in an underwater cave in Mexico supports the theory that the first Native Americans migrated to the New World across Siberia. The origins of Native Americans have been cloudy. Preserved DNA suggests that they are descended from Siberian migrants, but some skulls look more like European or Asian groups. Researchers in the US looked at the skeleton, that of a teenage girl, for clues. She has the ancient skull shape, but her DNA matches modern Native Americans. This suggests that Native Americans took the Trans-Siberian route and then evolved a different skull shape once on American soil. Read more in Science. And now over to Kerry, who's been floating around with some peculiar sea creatures. Comb jellies are the aliens of the deep. Their transparent bodies are bedecked with lines of waving cilia that power them through the water, reflecting the light in a rainbow of colours. Some have long tentacles to trap prey. Evolutionarily, they're old-timers. They branched off from the rest of the tree of life pretty early, 500 million years ago. So scientists expected them to be simple creatures. But in fact, they're capable of quite complex behaviour requiring a decent nervous system. They hunt prey, for example. It's a bit like finding a Ferrari engine in a Ford Fiesta. All in all, they're a mysterious clan. Here's Leonid Moroz, whose group has just published a draft genome of a comb jelly. These are aliens in our backyard. They made a lot of stuff so differently, so we really would like to know how they did it. Looking at the genome is a good way to find out how these creatures have programmed their nervous systems. And there were a few surprises. Andreas Hainol is an evolutionary biologist not involved in the latest paper. It's the second genome which have been published in short sequence uh, of this comb jelly and uh, of two different species. And the findings of these uh, genome sequences and analysis have been found that they have a very reduced uh, gene set to build uh, the whole body. And uh, this reduced uh, set of genes 
has been interpreted as being very ancestral for animals. You have a very simple genome, but you have a very relatively complex animal, which has a nervous system and musculature. So people were surprised by these findings. And not only is it a smaller set of genes, it's also a very different set to those used to build other nervous systems. It's like looking in a Ford Fiesta, seeing a Ferrari engine, and then finding out it's made of wood. People were exploring the genome in further detail, and they have found that uh, there must be other molecules uh, patterning and triggering the nervous system than in other animals, uh, because uh, the common genes, which we know from other animals, are not all present in their genome. So they have a complex body, but they use different genes to pattern this body, obviously. All this means that comb jellies can help answer plenty of fundamental questions about how nervous systems evolved. Here's Moros again. Can neurons evolve once or many times? How to make neurons? How to make a complex brain? Does nature did it only once or multiple times? And why and how? The genome suggests that comb jelly nervous systems operate with a dramatically smaller repertoire of chemicals than our animal brains. Animals use 10 major chemicals to send signals between neurons, transmitters like dopamine, noradrenaline and serotonin. Comb jellies use just one, glutamate. It's a totally different setup. And this begs the question, can something as complex as a nervous system evolve more than once? Here's Andreas Hainol again. It has been thought previously that there are characters in animals which are so complex that they cannot be evolved twice. And the nervous system is one of these things. But the comb jelly nervous system is so different that it must have evolved separately from that of other animals. So the nervous system of these animals is now in focus because it's one of these organ systems which is not present in the next two branches, like in sponges and trichoplugs. So there is the, the possibility that this nervous system has been evolved independently from the other nervous system. This findings change a little bit the view of how we have to see evolution and how evolution works. Comb jellies could even serve as inspiration for anyone wishing to design nervous systems for synthetic organisms, the authors say. Why use ten chemicals when you could get by with one? That was Andreas Hainel and before him, Leonid Moros. News time now, and joining me in the studio is news team duo Daniel Cressy and Davide Kaslovecki. Dan, you first with a story about the future of deep sea exploration, which be, which has been thrown into doubt. That's right. This is the tragic loss of the submarine Nereus, which imploded 10 kilometres under the sea earlier this month and has taken with it the hopes of many, many deep sea researchers. First of all, what is Nereus? Nereus is a really advanced robot that could either be dispatched autonomously into the depths of the ocean or could be controlled from scientists on a research vessel above. And it could go right to the bottom, 10, 11 kilometres under the ocean. It could pick things up, it could video things, it could interact with other bits of scientific equipment down there. It was operated by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is based in the United States, but it was used by scientists around the world and it was really a massive asset for people who want to know what's going on in what is the most unexplored region of our planet. What was Nereus doing down there? 
Neris was involved in a really pioneering project to look at the ecosystems of uh, the animals that dwell really, really deep in an area of the sea called the Hadal Zone, below 6,000 metres. And Nereus was doing some pioneering work looking into deep trenches, like the Mariana Trench, and in this case, the Kermadec Trench. And unfortunately, it seems to have been destroyed. And what do engineers think was the reason why it blew apart? Well, um, if you want to go deep down in the sea, you need to have some flotation and you need something to encase your electronics and your batteries. And in Neris's cases, it used ceramics to do that. Now, what is likely to have happened is that one of the containers um, developed a fault and probably imploded due to the enormous pressure of water. And that probably triggered a chain reaction, which took out other vessels on the vehicle and eventually led to its disruption. And was any data lost in the explosion? Well, luckily, Nereus was connected uh, by a cable to the surface. So all of the data that scientists have collected previously on this cruise and indeed on that dive is preserved. But with the loss of Nereus, there is now basically no way for scientists to do a lot of the work that they wanted to in that depth. So it's a real setback for deep sea research. Mm. So there's no equivalent submersible um, at those depths um, that can continue that research? Basically not. I mean, there's a whole suite of, uh, of vessels which people have to access the deep sea, but all of the ones that have humans in are limited to depths much shallower than where Nereus could get to. There are ways of doing research at those depths with just basically tying a weight to some scientific equipment and throwing it off the side of your boat. But Nereus was basically the only thing that let you see what was down there and direct uh, your attention towards it. So in the aftermath of this explosion, uh, what happens now? Will engineers be building a replacement? Hopefully. I mean, in the immediate aftermath, the people who were hoping to use Nereus later this year are trying to find other ways of doing the science that they were going to do. There are also plans afoot to build a successor to Nereus. These plans were in the works before the loss, uh, so it remains to be seen how they might be changed by, uh, by what's happened. Okay, thanks, Dan. Well, coming back up to the surface to you, Davide, uh, with a story about the recent gravitational waves findings. Back in March, we heard how physicists had detected these waves and the announcement caused a huge sensation, but now it's been called into question. First of all, let's just recap on those findings. Yeah, so cosmologists uh, announced that they had seen these signatures in the sky that dated all the way back to the early universe and were supposed to have originated in inflation, which is this very brief instant at the beginning of the universe's history. And they were supposed to be the evidence that clinched the case for this inflation having happened, this this burst of expansion. But since then, there's been some scrutiny of the results. Yeah, so probably the most relevant recent uh, development is that just last week, a cosmologist called Raphael Floger gave a talk at Princeton University. And he said that he reanalyzed some of the data that um, the the team had used to make their claim, the BICEP2 team, the, the, the team that made the announcement in March. And he came to different conclusions. He says that the signal from the early universe may not be as strong as BICEP2 claimed. And in fact, when you go and analyze the data, it could drown in noise coming from the galaxy, which is, of course, much closer than this faraway signal. 
And what evidence does he have for this? So he used preliminary data from a different experiment called Planck. BICEP2 was based at the South Pole. It was uh, land-based. Planck is a a space probe that was um, operated until 2013 by the European Space Agency. And Planck has not released its final data yet, its final assessment of the sky. But BICEP2 had used some of their preliminary data to estimate this basically foreground noise. And Flauger, who gave the talk last week, says that his take on the Planck data shows that maybe the BICEP2 signal, the signal from these gravitational waves, is not as strong after all as they had claimed. And how do we know which data to rely on, Planck or BICEP2? So fortunately, we may find out soon. It's, it's, it's becoming kind of a mystery because there's a lot of conflicting uh, information here. But fortunately, by the autumn at the latest, we should be able to know for sure because other experiments will release their own map of that same section of the sky that BICEP2 looked at. And so we should be able to find out. And how have these criticisms gone down amongst the physics community? I mean, I can't imagine the original team were too pleased. They are standing by their conclusions. Other people are criticizing them for going public with their claims before their papers were peer-reviewed or or published. According to the Washington Post, some people are concerned that this could be an embarrassment for the entire field. Thanks, Davide and Dan. Remember, you can read those stories and more at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Join us next time. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 